Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green and I'm your host. Glad to be with you today. We're at the second Sunday in Lent in 2021. Starting to see some signs of spring. Not so much in the when I look out the window. I don't see anything particularly on my dogwood trees, my oak trees, or even on my hemlocks. I don't see that little green tips of growth yet. But I'm starting to see it because, like, the UK is opening up a little bit more, and they've announced some openings in May, and then we in North Carolina, there's been some lightening of restrictions, and so there's some movement, it seems, <laughs> and it certainly feels more like spring than it did last week when Texas and so much of the uh, that part of the lower sort of Midwest was frozen over, and now it's been, I think, in the 80s in some parts of Texas over the last little bit. So it's exciting to see that that they've recovered, survived, whatever words you want to use on that. We, we've still got stuck in the rain. It's been the last part of the week. It's been rainy. But we had two or three days that were beautiful, absolutely perfect days. Sun was out, not a cloud in the sky. And then they rolled in overnight last night. So I'm ready to get out and start hiking again. But it's got to stop raining because the problem with hiking in the mountains when it's wet is you're hiking on hills a good bit. And I don't want to be sliding down and busting my rear end. So I've got some, I've got some new chews coming tomorrow, so I'm excited about that. And I don't know, not too much else going on. I'm excited about being in the Word more. And so I've got this daily podcast. I don't know if you've seen it, but I've got a daily podcast now. I used to write a blog because the Anglican world has lessons appointed for every single day of the year, and it runs in a two-year cycle. And so I used to write a blog for seven years on it. Now I'm going to try and, and actively engage in doing these podcasts, and I'm going to switch, not switch over necessarily. It's probably going to be on both platforms, but I'm going to move some things and start videoing pretty soon. I'm not sure quite when yet. There's some logistics things I have to work out, and then also just to get comfortable with the camera and all that kind of stuff, and then got to probably end up learning something about editing it. Um, so we'll see, but it's, that'll be over on a YouTube channel that I'll link over in below in the description where the lessons are. And, and feel free to come over there and, and subscribe and see what's going on and hit the notification bell so that you get... Uh, notices whenever I post something new, which will be every day. I'm going to also got a friend who suggested that I do something completely different, and I'll talk about that at another time. But uh, I'm excited about the opportunities and the things that, that I'm getting ready to start doing. And so I feel like personally spring is sprung because it's been a long time since I've been this engaged with Scripture in this way. And so I'm excited about that. And God seems to be you know, blessing it by showing up whenever I do it. And showing me things uh, to bring to the table in, in this reflective way. So I'm excited about that. <clears throat> anyway, so I've, let's jump into the lessons today. And so what we've got is um, the psalm is Psalm 22, and it's the verses 22 to 30 there. The uh, Old Testament lesson is Genesis 1, or 17, sorry, 1 to 16, Romans 4, 13 to 25, and Mark 8, 31 to 38. We're going to be in Mark's gospel all through Lent this year. Um, there's a, there'll be links down below to, to those, the, not, well, to those scriptures. The, every scripture will be a hyperlink, and you can click on that, and it'll take you to BibleGateway.com where you can see the full text of all this stuff. I'm still going to continue to do the text the way I've been doing it, but just wanted to let you know that there are links down there if you'd like to pull those lessons up. I, the only reason I don't print the whole thing is you're limited on the number of characters you can actually put down there, and, and the lessons just won't fit in the description. 
So, anyway, let's jump into the Genesis lesson. So, what we've got is, is God announcing, this is, again, it's Genesis 17. So, God comes and shows up. Abraham's 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So, remember in, verse, in chapter 12, um, God had, had promised things to Abraham. Then in chapter 15, he had cut the covenant between the two of them. And, and at that point, what they did was, remember, Abraham had to take the, the animals and make the little alleyway between the pieces of the animals. And then the smoking pot comes through, and the covenant is announced. And now the covenants are based on blood, right? So it, what it's saying is, let it be done to me as to these animals if I fail to keep that covenant. And you'll notice something right away, and that is is that only the presence of God passes through that uh, the pieces of the animal. He doesn't ask or require Abraham to do that at all. So, because he can't, he will fail to keep the covenant, and so will his offspring after him. And so, keeping that covenant or, or making that covenant vow would require too much of Abraham. Something that he's that God knows he's not able to do, and so. God is. And so what's the resolution to all that? And that is ultimately that one is born like us, but who is of God, is God, and he's the one who is ultimately sacrificed for the failure on humanity's part to keep the covenant. And so because of that, then we are all reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus in keeping with that covenant promise. So that's in chapter 15, and now here they've done the thing of uh, Hagar and Ishmael, and so they've, they've lost faith. Well, that's not even completely fair to say that, because the question is, did God really say that he was going to give you a child through me? You're going to have a child, Abraham, but am I involved? And so that's when she says, so sleep with my maid, and here we go. And then, so here we are now in this uh, chapter 17 passage. They've already got Ishmael, and he's going to appear actually in this reading. Or not in the reading, he appears just beyond the reading. But um, So he's 99 years old. God shows up and says, Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. So Abraham falls on his face at that point because you do when God shows up. And so God continues to say things to him and make promises. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I mean, what is your response to that? Cool? Sounds great. What's the catch? There's got to be a catch, right? That's the way we think. This seems too good to be true. He's going to make multitude of nations come out of me. I'm going to be exceedingly fruitful. Nations, kings permanently everlasting possession kind of stuff there's got to be a kicker here and and there is but it's you know it, it's circumcision 
And it's not like circumcision was unknown in that part of the world either. I mean, it's just <clears throat> something that some people did. They did it for different purposes, though. God says that's the way the covenant is going to be marked in your flesh. So it's sort of like being branded, except for it's not being branded, right? I mean, it's going to be marked in the males. Because he tells him, as for you, you'll keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And you got to see, you know, can you just see Abraham sitting on the edge of his seat saying, okay, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? And then God says, every male among you shall be circumcised. You'll be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It'll be a sign in the covenant of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any father, foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he's broken my covenant. I mean, you can just, like Abraham, looking, going, huh? Wait a minute, that, that's not an uncommon thing, but, but what God's saying is, is that this is the sign of the covenant between me and you. It may not be uncommon, but it's something that you're going to keep for a specific purpose. It's not like you're just doing it for sanitary reasons or whatever, and, and that's one of the reasons that you know most guys my age are, um, was because, well, that's just what you did. The, the parents made the decision, and they did that. The thing that's interesting about this is, is that God gives them a very specific um, command on this, right? He says, do it on the eighth day. Okay. Um, but there's a particular reason that you do that. They couldn't possibly have known this, but on the eighth day, there's a chemical in your body that's called prothrombin, and prothrombin is, is um, on one specific day of a man's life, the eighth day after his birth, there's a, an enormous production of prothrombin that happens that keeps the blood flowing but not but it won't clot the same way so you're not at risk of clots you're not at risk of bleeding out in the same way it's a very odd thing it's almost like god knew that but it's interesting right that he chose specifically the eighth day thousands and thousands of years before we would have any earthly idea about prothrombin so it's it's an amazing thing that god gives them here is this command and it's very specific you know, that if he doesn't tell them to do it on the eighth day, then, then what they would assume is, well, there's, there must be something here that we can puzzle out and figure out exactly when you want us to do this. And so, no, he gives them this command. And so then, it, you know, if, if you're bought with a price, if you are a slave in um, Israel, if you've been bought and brought into the family, it's an interesting thing because what happens there is you become part of the covenant community. So it's not a bad thing to get purchased and be brought into an Israelite household because they've got ethical things that they have to keep in mind all the time, and that is that you're created in the image of God. So there's certain ways they have to treat you. They can't treat you as something less than human. They have to treat you as, as another like them. They're given these commands all through Scripture in ways that, that pagan cultures didn't recognize that. But not only that, you're brought into the community. So you're not a slave. You're also brought into the covenant community through that um, covenant of circumcision. It might not be the thing you wanted to happen, but the, nonetheless, you're now part of that community for life. And so would your children be 
so long as you continue to be part of that community. It's a fascinating thing. And then you see the thing about the uncircumcised male would be cut off um, from the people. The, the fascinating thing about that is, is that remember that, that I consider this the single greatest act of leadership in the history of mankind, that the, uh, the generation that was in the wilderness had not been circumcised. And so before they went into the land, Joshua has to say, <laughs> he gets them all fired up and then says, hey, fellas, before we go in there and take the land, though, we all got to be circumcised. I mean, it's a big deal um, that that happens. You can remember in the rape of Dinah, you see the same thing with the Shechemites, that they agree to allow uh, Dinah, the sister or the, the daughter, to be um, to marry the Shechemite king prince that, that raped her. They they say, oh, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll become part of you. You'll become part of us. All the men have to be circumcised. And then her brothers decide to attack them and kill them while they're recuperating from that. And so, but the other place, the chief place that you see it, is, is that when Moses is coming into the land, remember, he's coming back from serving his father-in-law Jethro during that period of time. And he and his wife Zipporah are coming back with their children, actually. And Moses hasn't been circumcised. Remember, he grew up in the household of Pharaoh, so he wasn't circumcised, and he's now 80-ish years old. And God breaks out against him in the wilderness as they're coming back, and he's, it says he's going to kill Moses. It's because of this. He's an uncircumcised male. He's cut off from his family. He's got to get that done in order to be part of the clan that he's going there to redeem. Interesting, right? Sounds kind of like Jesus getting baptized. That in order to be like us, he had to take on flesh first, but then he also had to be circumcised on the eighth day. He also then had to be baptized so that he could identify with sinners, which is what he's doing there, and then most particularly doing it at the cross. And so you've got this this circumcision thing is really important because it, it, it makes a man think differently <laughs> about things. Should should raise awareness of the way things should be used within a covenant relationship. And so I believe that's the reason God chose that particular sign is because now that is an important thing. And it's also the way that God says, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. Well, there's only one way you can do that. So <clears throat> that's the issue. But this is important stuff. Uh, and then God says this other thing. After he says all that to Abraham, he looks and he says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, Sarai, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I'll bless her, and moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So now Abraham can go back and go, You know what? Before we had that problem with we didn't know whether you were going to be the mother or not. God told me specifically this time. You are. And it's an odd thing, right? Because he's 99 and she's like 84, somewhere in that range. So now, here we go. We've got these two people who have waited for the fulfillment of this promise for 25 years now. And God suddenly, in their old dotage, really, has promised, yep, I'm going to come through for you now. All this is about faith. If he had done it any time before now, that it's not about faith. It was like, well, okay, that could happen, but not anymore. And we know that that's how they thought about it because what happens here is is that he, Abraham, falls on his face and laughs about this whole idea of him and Sarah at their age having children. And then she laughs later 
when God says something about it in the next chapter. So we know that, that it required faith to continue to persevere, and they could have said, you know, to heck with it somewhere along the way, but they chose to continue in faith during all these years. Then I'm going to go, I think today, I think I'm going to go to the Romans lesson next. And Paul is is talking here about um, the place the Jews have in the world, essentially, but at the same time, he has just finished saying to the Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and so nobody gets in through that covenant. We get in through the covenant in Jesus' blood, through faith. And he has just made that point in Romans 3. And now here we come into Romans 4, and he says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he'd be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The covenant came before obedience. It came before the law was given, but not only that, it came before Abraham and his family were circumcised. He says, for if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heir, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So if it's built on faith, then everything rests on grace because it's not ask, it's not based on anything you've done. And then you can get into, well, is faith a work? Not really, because it's a gift. <clears throat> So it's guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, because there were none between Abraham and the time at Sinai. So several hundred years, there's no law. So it can't be, the promise can't rest on adherence to the law when there wasn't a law for another 430 years. So that sounds good. He says, not only to the adherent of the law, but one who share, also one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offsprings be. And Paul's given Abraham a lot of credit in this next thing. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. As I told you, if you read on in 17 in Genesis, you're going to see that he fell on his face and laughed and said some things. But at the same time, that must not have been exactly the right way to read it, the way we read it today, because God didn't rebuke him for that. So he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb after at least 25 years together. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's an important thing, that, that as we give glory to God while we wait for the fulfillment of, of whatever promise we've been given, then we grow strong in our faith fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the important thing, right? If God's made you a promise, he's told you that he's going to do something, then he will do it. And frequently what has to happen is you have to get to a place where you're without hope, but when you also stop trying to make it happen yourself because it's a thing of God. And that's what they did before was they tried to make something happen, and what they did was they created Ishmael. So... That's why, he says, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's easy from our side of this to believe that Jesus could be raised from the dead because we have the testimony of many witnesses. We have the testimony of the Gospels. We have the testimony of those Luke speaks of, who Luke, remember, went and said he wrote to Theophilus, which means lover of God. He wrote to him concerning all the things they had heard about that uh, he made a full investigation. He talked to witnesses. He did everything necessary to prove or disprove these stories of the resurrection and the stories of Jesus. And so the gospel is written in order to say, all right, here's a full account of what I learned from talking to many witnesses. And then the um, the book of Acts, the first part of it, is written in the same way. And then you can see there's a shift in the language, and I can't remember exactly what chapter it is now, where that shift in language occurs, where he's no longer speaking of what happened. He becomes a part of the action and says, we did this, that, and the other thing. And so, so he's making his investigation, he's caught up in it, and he becomes part of the community as he moves along through the book of Acts. And he's now reporting his eyewitness testimony on these things but he checked with witnesses so we can trust the gospels to be based on eyewitness accounts and they were written in the lifespan of people who could have said hey that's all not true i was around during that time and none of those things actually happened i mean it's it's a completely different idea to write those things in the in the memory of people who were there to dispute them than it is to write those things many, many years later. And n- almost none of the Bible, the most the last thing that was written would have been either John or the book of the Revelation, and both of those would have obviously been during the life of John. <laughs> so, I mean, he wasn't the longest-lived man around, and he was already probably, you know, not he was an adult when all this happened, so people who would have been younger than him could have said, wait a minute, none of that's true. But that's not what happened. So they, they're writing contemporary accounts of what happened. And so we we can have faith that Jesus was raised from the dead. We can have faith that he did miracles in Cana and Galilee and Capernaum in um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We can we can know those things are absolutely true because they were they they were undisputed at the time that they were written. So we can we have a positive witness of that, but we also have the witness of the Holy Spirit to tell us it's true now 2,000 years later. And so those are important things to realize is that we have a huge benefit in understanding some of this stuff that we read because we have the Holy Spirit and we have the testimony and the testimony of the church and the perseverance of the church over the last 2,000 years when it would have been easily stamped out way before it got to that point. So those things are all important to know and especially important to know when we read a lesson like the gospel that we have today. So... There are things in our own lives, however, where we need to be aware of the same thing. We, we need to not get ahead of God, and we need not to lose faith in God. Both those things are important. So here's the gospel. It's Mark eight thirty one to 38. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. 
Now, he's been speaking in parables and stuff, and so some of the times people just have no earthly idea what he's talking about. And you've seen these other places where he speaks, and, and he uses metaphors that they don't get. And so now, Mark says, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, remember this. Peter is, we believe, to be the source <laughs> for Mark's gospel primarily. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, the one who had just, you don't see it here, but he had just confessed him to be the Messiah. Now he takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, the Messiah. <laughs> but turning and seeing his disciples, so Jesus looks over his shoulders and he sees this scene where these guys are looking like, what's going to happen here? Because he knows they're probably in the same place. Peter's just the one who's been bold enough, dumb enough, whatever word you want to use, to take the guy that they all believe is Messiah aside and rebuke him for what he's just said. That ain't going to happen, Jesus. That's not how it goes. Let me get out my Bible. I will prove it to you that that's not what happens to Messiah. So Jesus turns, sees the disciples there. He rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Hmm. That has to hurt. That will definitely leave a mark. I mean, you carry that one around with you for a while, right? If, if Jesus calls you Satan, Jesus who has just said, I'll build my house on that. The kingdom will be built on your confession, Peter. And now he calls him Satan because Satan had tried to tempt Jesus to a kingdom without a cross as well. He didn't fall for it then, but you remember that it says that he left him for a more opportune time, and now he's not doing it directly. He's using one of the beloved disciples to do it, and so <clears throat> Jesus knows this has to be rebuked, and he knows exactly what he has to do with this, and, and it's got to be clear and plain. And so you want a kingdom without a cross. You want salvation without my death. That's not God's way. It's your way. Of making a king it's not God's way because the kingdom is not of this world as Jesus will say multiple times so he calls the crowd to him with his disciples now and he says to them if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and we're familiar with that and, and we can you know put that on uh, in any manner of t-shirts or tattoos or whatever we want to do with it it becomes a really nice slogan but at the time try and listen to that same thing prior to the crucifixion. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I'm sure they're thinking, okay, now he's going back to metaphors. He's not talking as plainly anymore, but he was. And if you try and interpret that from their lens, they have no earthly idea what to make of that. It makes no sense. There's no way to get your head around that because you don't know that he's going to go to the cross, that that's the way he's going to die. Because he's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And so they don't have the power to crucify him or even give the death penalty. He's going to be killed. And, and nobody who even believed that he was going to be killed could have thought on a Roman cross. Nobody would have come to that conclusion. They would have thought he was going to be murdered maybe. But it's a powerful statement for us because we know what actually happens for them. It's just one of those confusing things that wouldn't have made much sense at the time. But by the time the gospel's written, it makes great sense and it's personal and it's powerful and it's real and it's gritty and 
some of these guys are actually going to know what that looks like and feels like. For us, it's, you know, 0% likelihood that that's physically going to happen to us, but it's more than a metaphor. We have to die to self, and that's what he says. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. At that time, they have no idea what the gospel is. Again, here we go. They don't have a clue what that's going to mean. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And it's an amazing thing that Jesus is saying here, and it's incomprehensible and unimaginable at the time that he says it. But now from retrospect, we're all supposed to look at this and we're all supposed to then honestly think about Ecclesiastes. And if you haven't read Ecclesiastes lately, I would encourage you. It wouldn't take you terribly long to read it. Um, but but what it's the message of Ecclesiastes is is that nothing under the sun truly matters. So set your heart and mind on things above the sun, because what Solomon is at pains to say is is that I've had it all, I've done it all, I know it all, and what I finally learned is wisdom. And the wisdom is is that all this stuff under the sun just passes away at the end of the day. It's all gone. It's vapor. It's a painful thing to come to that realization. We're supposed to enjoy what he's given us, but we're not supposed to enjoy it to the extent that we no longer are focused on God's way. We've got to focus our eyes in a different way. We are, we are meant to enjoy, appreciate, utilize, um, celebrate everything under the sun, but not to worship it and not to give everything within us for that. We're called to faith. We're called to believe that there is indeed a better world, a much better world than the world that we inhabit, the only one that we know. We're called to something completely different. And we're called to a perfected creation because that's exactly what Revelation shows us is there's a new creation that comes down out of heaven. And that's what we're made for. And so it's not our job to survive this world. There's more to it than that. There, it's our job in this world to keep our eyes so fixed on the other world and so fixed on the God of this world that we pass through this without losing eternity. And we do that primarily by just trusting Him in all things. And if He's promised something, then, then we wait and we persevere and we pray and we believe. And we don't attempt to do God's work for Him because we end up with an Ishmael when we do that. So it's important to keep the mind of Christ about all these things. God's kingdom being the most important thing we can ever have, and it all is brought to us, and we receive it, and we accept it through faith in the one who has passed through this life successfully and who has made a way then for us to join him in that eternal kingdom. God bless pray that, that the Lord will, will draw you to him this week, that your heart and your mind will be set and fixed on him, and that he will bless you in mighty ways as he blessed Abraham, as he blessed the disciples, as he blessed Paul and all the others. Take care. This is Faith Seeking Understanding, and again, I'm John Green, your host.